Thank you, worship team, for bringing us before the Lord this morning, or this afternoon. I am so grateful the truth we just sang. In our Father's house, there is room for us. It's room for everyone who would come to him, and we are so grateful for that. Well, if you have your Bibles open with me to 1 Peter chapter 4, we're going to be looking in verses 7 to 11. I'll read, it, read them, pray, and then we'll get right into it. So here we are in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. Peter says something that may surprise you, and we'll walk through exactly what he means by it. Here he is in verse 7. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. For it is to him that belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you this afternoon that we can gather together to hear your word proclaimed, to gather together to sing your praises, for you are worthy. And your son is worthy, for he took our sins and he bore them for us. And he rose again, declaring victory over death, and has now granted to us that same victory. So today, we can repeat the words of Romans chapter 8, that there is no condemnation for we who are in Christ Jesus. And this is not because of what we have done. It is because of what you, through your Son and by your Spirit, have done for us. And so we come, needy people, looking this morning into your word, asking that you might once more speak to us, change us, make us more like the image of your Son, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Peter starts this passage with these words, the end of all things is at hand. Well, the end of all things is an interesting and fascinating statement, isn't it? Because, of course, it's referring to the end of all things, all things. It's referring to the final judgment. It's referring to the moment in which the Lord Jesus will descend from heaven. And a lot of people are questioning this phrase as Peter uses it and as Jesus himself used it because Jesus himself said that he would be returning and that it was going to be coming and in uh, some have suggested at a quick pace. I would suggest this though. What the, the biblical passage tells us is that Jesus promised that he would return. We know that. That's exactly what he told us. And this is what he told to his disciples in Matthew 24, one of his last sermons that he ever gave to his disciples. He says, two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Therefore, and then notice these words, stay awake. Stay awake for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known it, what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. 
So here's what Jesus tells his disciples. He tells them numerous times, I am returning. I'm coming back, and I'll take those who are my own. We celebrate that truth. But when they asked him, when is it going to take place? His response was always, soon. Now, why is that? And of course, we know when we look at the timetable of history, it's been some 2,000 years. And you think, well, that didn't seem very soon. Of course, 2 Peter gives us part of the answer. He says, with the Lord, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. God doesn't count time the way that you and I count time. So there's some truth in that. But I think when you look at the whole, uh, the, the whole scope of Scripture, here's, here's how Scripture provides it. Scripture says this. It says that there's a timetable that God has laid out for when he will do what he's going to do. And there are certain things that he had promised from before time began, in essence, in the gospel. But he, he made promises that things would take place. And in essence, what we are in at the present moment is the final days. That's how actually scripture speaks of it. It's the final days. And what that means is that the next thing on God's divine timetable is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, uh, we could develop that more with, with the rapture and the tribulation and all that's going to take place there. But the simple matter of the fact is this, that the Lord is returning and it's the next thing on the divine timetable. Now, what we then immediately imagine is then it must necessarily be coming quickly. It must be tomorrow or today. And yet, as we look at the timetable of history, we discover that it may not even be for another 2,000 years. And now, some have suggested that biblical authors were wrong because they said, be ready for the Lord's appearing. And of course, the Lord hasn't appeared for some 20, some generations or so. And yet, when we look at it, what the biblical authors are saying is not, be ready because he's going to come back today. They're saying, be ready because he could come back today. And that's always been true, and it's true today. In fact, we are to be ready. He says here in this passage in Matthew, he says, stay awake, for you don't know what day the Lord's going to come. And then he says, but you must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And I think when we look then at this passage, what we're discovering is that we have to be ready for the return of the Lord. And he could come today. You know, I've used an analogy. I think a sports analogy helps. Because you know, if you've ever played sports, that the final inning, the final quarter, the final period, whatever gauge you have within that sport is the most important thing because then everything that you do in that moment is going to matter perhaps the weirdest sport and americans don't get this sport it's, it's called football across the world but it's actually soccer i just wish they would understand that but <clears throat> but this game called soccer if you've ever watched a game it can be quite quite frustrating because you ask somebody, all right, how long until uh, this game's over with? And they say, well, it's a 90-minute game. Have you ever watched a soccer game? 90 minutes appears, and then they blow the whistle, right? No, they don't, do they? So you see, you've got the first half of the game, you've got the second half of the game, and then you've got this undetermined period of time. How long? 
I really have no clue. Nobody knows except the guy who decides to blow the whistle when he decides to blow the whistle, right? And so you're waiting, and, and the whole time, it's this tense time, especially if it's a close game, because what if somebody else scores during this final period of time? You don't know. All you know is that everything that needed to take place for the final the end of the game has already taken place. And what we're just waiting for is the final whistle. And my suggestion is that we live in the final whistle period. The 90 minutes is over. The time period in which God has said that this has to happen, this has to happen, this has to happen. I think all those things have happened. And so now we wait for the final whistle. But it isn't up to you, it isn't up to me when that final whistle takes place. So... If that's the case, then we're living in the final days. And that's what Peter's saying here. The end of all things is at hand. We're in the final time period. Which, of course, means that everything we do really matters. I was reminded of this just recently. My wife and I were joking because I was helping my father move. And he had to get everything out of, out of the house in which he was in so that some people can come and clean it. And I was joking with my wife. I said, you know, we, we, had, this, we, we had to get these things done. And then I look outside, and my dad's raking the leaves. And I'm just thinking, the leaves don't matter right now. What we've got to do is this. And then she said, I know where he gets that from. <laughs> Have you ever invited someone over the house, and you know they're going to get there at 6 o'clock, at 5.55, Everybody's just sitting on the couch waiting for the, for the people to come over, right? Well, maybe that's how it is in your home. In our home, it's like, all right, there are 45 minutes of things to be done in this five minutes, all right? So let's get at it. And she says that I'm outside raking the leaves during those five minutes. Well, in any case, we're in the final moments. And so we have to make the best use of the time in which we have left. And I think that's, what, that's all Peter's saying at the beginning of this passage. He says, the end of all things is at hand. God has fulfilled all that he needed to fulfill. And now we're awaiting his final whistle. And so then, how ought we to live? So I'm going to suggest that the outline of the passage goes this way. He, there's actually only one real command in this passage. And we're going to read it right there in verse 7. Be self-controlled and sober-minded. And then the rest of what comes in this passage are what we ought to do in light of being serious, being sober and self-controlled. In other words, I think this is what Peter's telling us. Since it is the last moment, we've got to be really serious about our lives. What does it mean to be serious about our lives? And these are the four things we're going to walk through today because this is what Peter tells us to be serious about. So first, we've got to think about what he means when he says, be serious. There are two uh, verbs he gives us here in verse 7. He says, therefore, be self-controlled. And I'm suggesting that this is related to the idea of being sane, being sensible, being rational. Have you ever run into someone who just seems irrational? They're not thinking right. Uh, maybe, uh, you know, there, there's a, there's a uh, massive fire and they're running back in the, in the fire to get something that seemingly is meaningless. And you're thinking, you're not thinking reasonably in this situation. The word Peter uses here for be self-controlled really is a word that refers to think rightly according to the circumstances in which you find yourself. Be sane about your life. And I think the implication here is 
Since the, this is the last time, since we're waiting for the last whistle, and you know that the end is near, think about what you ought to be doing. How ought you to live? That's what he's saying. He uses a second one, and it's sober-minded. Uh, the word refers in the rest of the New Testament and in Greek literature, it refers to being drunk, actually. Uh, well, it means to not be, be drunk. It says, be sober. Don't engage in th mind-altering substances in order to be distracted. Now, I actually don't think that Peter here is dealing with a bunch of drunkards in his congregation, and he's saying, you know, you need to lay off, lay off the line there. I don't think that's actually what he's saying. I think he's using this metaphorically and saying, listen, just like I said you need to be sane, you need to be in full control of your mental faculties, and you need to be thinking rightly about what you should be doing in the time period in which you live. And, and I, I would suggest we, we get this a little bit, don't we? Have you ever heard the testimony of someone who's been told that they have stage four cancer? And at that moment, they know that their time is short. And, and what do they do in those moments? What do they begin to think? They begin to think, What's the most meaningful thing that I can do with the rest of the time that I have remaining? There's a bit of seriousness that enters their life because of the recognition that the time is short. I am convinced that Scripture tells us to live that way every day in light of the fact that, that our Lord Jesus Christ can return. So how are we going to be sane and sober? I think Peter gives to us a number of ways in which we can do it. But the very first thing he says, and I'm not surprised about this, he says, be sane or be self-controlled, be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So why should you think seriously? It's because we should be people of prayer. Now, it could be that he's saying, be mentally prepared so that you would pray well. Or it could be that be mentally prepared so that your prayers would be effective. And I think either is possible. But I would simply say this, that if we do not find ourselves as people of prayer, then we are likely not in the right mindset. If we really believe that the time is short, that the Lord could return tomorrow, then there's a lot of work to be done today. There's a lot of people in Belleville that need to hear the gospel of Christ. There are a lot of people in our families who need to see the light of Christ. There's a love that we need to demonstrate to those who are near us in our congregation, in our, in our Christian family. There's a lot to be done, which means that there's a lot to ask God for. If we really believe that the Lord is going to be returning then we need to be people of prayer. Now, I think Peter, a moment ago, just told us that one of the things we need to do is we need to be sober-minded. We need to not be controlled by things outside of ourselves, but be controlled by the overarching reality that the Lord is going to return. One of the drugs, I think, that is prevalent in our current culture, and it's probably not the one you're thinking, I'm not going to be talking about marijuana, nor even caffeine, if you count that as a drug. I don't know. I hope not. The drug I think that we are most 
Americans are addicted to is social media. If you look at the origins of social media, really it was a, it was a social experiment. It was a social experiment designed to get people to begin to look at something and to never turn their eyes away. Of course, there's a real good legitimate reason for a company to want that. Because if they can promise that you're continuing to look, guess who they can sell that to? Advertisers. And so there's a whole reason why this drug, and I really talk about it as a drug purposefully, has been given to us. It's, it's really to get advertising dollars. And if uh, you look at the way that people inhale social media, you find that it is, in fact, deeply addicting. And I think most of us would say we've experienced that in our own lives. Uh, sometimes I think it's healthy for us just to get rid of our social media apps for a month and, and to experience what it's like, again, not to live with those sorts of things. Now, my railing about that isn't necessarily due to that in itself, but I'd simply say this, that I think there are times in the Christian life where we need to think about what we've allowed in our lives and ask this question of ourselves. Am I being sober-minded in my prayer life? Or am I, again, and I mentioned this before, do I find myself saying, I just don't have time to pray? I don't have time to pray. And then we look at our time, and where have we spent our time? And I would just simply say that I think one of the things that ought to characterize the believer's life in these final days is prayerfulness. And there are things that are always going to get in, in the way of prayerfulness. I know that. Anything that gets in the way is something that's, that's, that's an obstacle that ought to be overcome, whatever it might be. And so I think Peter's here is saying, be sober, be sane. Think about the fact that we're in the final days. And part of that means we've got to be prayerful people. But it's not just prayerful people. He says, above all, we need to do something else. You'll notice it here in verse number 8. Not only be sober, sane, and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers, but above all these things, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. In Colossians, it tells us this, as God's chosen people, holy, dearly beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other. Forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against one another, and then notice how it concludes. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, Put on love. He's using a clothing metaphor. And he's saying you ought to have kindness, gentleness, all the sorts of clothes. And then he uses this analogy here. And put on over top of all these things, love. Which, he says, binds them all together in perfect unity. You can think of it then as, as the cloak that keeps all the other clothes together. You can think of it as the glue that ties all the wood together. Whatever you think of, it's the thing that keeps everything together. And you think of the centrality of love. I mean, Peter here says, above all things, above everything else that you do, make sure you've got love. 
Why is that? Do you remember Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 13? He said, if I had the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, what do you sound like? A clanging cymbal. You don't sound very good. I, I was grateful today, this afternoon, as we heard fantastic music being expressed from, uh, from, the, from the stand here as we sang. But imagine if somebody got up there, imagine if I got up here with a, with a cymbal, and I just decided, you know what, I'm going to start playing too, and I just started clanging it. It would ruin the whole thing. Despite the glory and, and the wonder and, and the awesomeness of the worship we just had, that clanging cymbal would have just ruined all of it. So here you have this wonderful worship, clanging cymbal ruins it. And this is what Paul is saying about love. If you don't have love, then all that's going to be heard is a clanging symbol. Now, he uses other illustrations. He says, if I had all the faith in the world, if I had all the knowledge in the world, but I don't have love, then it's incomplete. You see, love is that outer garment. Love is that glue. It is the thing that we must have. Why is that? Well, Scripture clearly tells us. If you remember Jesus, when he's asked, what's the greatest commandment, what does he say? Love God and love your neighbor. A vertical love and a horizontal love. This, is, this fulfills all the law and the prophets. And then when Jesus is talking to his disciples, he says, there's a way that everybody's going to know you're my disciples. If you have love for one another. This is the distinguishing mark of God's people. Peter has called us to it numerous times. And what he's saying here, as he draws the book to a con conclusion here in the next chapter as he says, above everything else, make sure you have love for one another. Well, what kind of love should we have for one another? There's a debate here, and uh, a couple of different translations take it different ways. You see here in the ESV, it says, have earnest love for one another. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, that is, or fervently, deeply. Uh, there are other translations that take this same word, to be continuously. And the problem is the word actually means both things, or it can mean both things. And so we're not sure which one initially Paul or Peter meant when he wrote this. They begin to pour it out, and here's the question. Do you want him to go fervently? Or continuously? Both, please. Right? <laughs> and in the same way, as, as Peter comes along and he says, love one another, does he mean fervently with, with some passion? Or does he mean continuously? And I think if Peter were here and we'd say, Peter, which one did you mean? And he said, yeah, both of those things. You need to do all of that. And this is what he's calling us to by fervent, deep love for one another. One that is continuous. Now, Peter gives actually a reason we ought to do it. He says, be loving because love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. That, seems, that sounds like a sort of weird phrase. What do we mean when we say love covers a multitude of sins? One of the things that's going to help us here is that this is actually an Old Testament quotation. 
So let's take a look at what the Old Testament said, because it'll help us to understand what Peter is saying. Proverbs 10, 12. Hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers over all wrongs. That's actually the same phrase that we have in the New Testament. Uh, love covers sins, many sins. It's the same phrase. And one of the things we know about Hebrew poetry is that Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme. If you learn Hebrew, you're not going to see rhymes because it just doesn't rhyme. What it instead does is it gives you parallel clauses. And often those parallel clauses say the same things. Sometimes they say the opposite things. And I think in this case, it's telling us the opposite things. Where there's hatred in a family, where there's hatred in a home or in a, in a church or in a situation, where there's hostility, guess what you're going to find? Strife. You're going to have conflict. Because one person wants his way, the other person wants the other way. But where love exists, what do you find? You find harmony. Now, why is that? Is it because there are not sins done to other people? Is it because in those situations, nobody's actually offending anyone else? That's actually not the case. You know what it is? It's that in loving relationships, we are much more able to overlook the minor faults of someone else. Have you ever heard of a church split over the color of the carpet? Something like that? I promise you that the color of the carpet is not why that church split. Something else had been festering for a long time. And what had happened was that there was division in the church. There was a lack of love in the church. And do you know what happens in relationships where there's a lack of love? The smallest offense becomes Mount Everest. I was looking through the internet and I, th I thought I could find some really strange reasons for divorce. And so it is that I, I found some rather strange reasons for divorce. One man who was divorced said it was because a wall was dirty in his house. And when he told his wife that the wall was dirty and that it needed to be cleaned, she didn't want to clean it, so he knocked it down and rebuilt the wall, and apparently that didn't go over very well. Obviously, there were deeper problems at hand with this marriage prior to the wall being dirty. One Japanese couple divorced over whether the movie Frozen was a good movie. He didn't think so, but she did. And apparently she couldn't let it go. Sorry, I had to, <laughs> had to do that one. All right. <clears throat> then there was the man who did not put his dishes away, but would set them next to the sink. And apparently this was the ultimate cause for the divorce. And I would suggest to you again that this is probably not the ultimate reason for the divorce. When you get to that level of pettiness, what has happened is that other bigger issues have taken place. There's now a lack of love. And all of a sudden, the smallest things become the large things. And here the passage is telling us that hatred stirs up conflict. But love covers 
all wrongs. And I've, tried, I've taken this to heart in our own family, and I, I thought, you know, when there's strife, when there's division, and, uh, you know, when, when there's issues, we, we just say, all right, where, where are we falling short in love? Because that's what we're missing here at the present moment. How can we love one another better? Now, of course, there are some things that you, don't, you simply don't overlook, and I understand that. Peter isn't here saying, love people and just overlook everything they ever do. That's not what he's saying. But he is saying this, that love is such that when it's present within a congregation and when it's present here, then there can be the small things. People can do things that they didn't mean to do, but it was offensive. And you know what you can say? I know they didn't mean it because I love them and they love me. But the moment you begin to doubt that and you see somebody do something and you say, ah, there's more evidence. And it's a, it's a cycle we never want to get into. So test your heart in those things. Do you find yourself in conflict a lot? Ask yourself the question, am I loving? Because here what Peter says is, above all, if you're going to keep the unity of this church, above all, what you're going to have to have is love for one another. Because love covers a multitude of sins. Are we thankful that God's love covered a multitude of sins on our behalf? Could we then show forth the sort of love that covers a multitude of our brother and sister's sins as well? I think we can. All right, so, so far we've seen, sorry, so far we've seen Peter say, we have to live seriously, sanely, soberly in this world. That means we need, have to be prayerful. It means we have to be loving. A third thing he tells us is that we have to be hospitable. Hospitality is an interesting thing, isn't it? And, you know, th this is actually a really hard one to bring over culturally into our current context. Because in the ancient world, hospitality was a massive thing. Uh, people would come into the town center, and it was expected that somebody would bring them into their home, would feed them, and this just was expected. And Christians, above all, uh, we can see this from historical documents, Christians were known for their hospitality. Hospitality, actually, the, the word itself is broken up of two words that just simply means philo, lover, Philadelphia, brother, city of brotherly love, philo, lover, and then xenoi, xenophobia, fear of strangers. In this case, it's love for strangers. And this is what hospitality means. In the Christian assembly, it meant, I think, two things. It meant that those who were better off, had more fiscal resources, could serve others by hosting them in their house. And this was especially the case in, in, uh, in, in the place in which Peter was writing, you didn't really have lecture halls. You didn't have church buildings. They didn't, they didn't have these sorts of things. Of course, you did have some synagogues, but the Jews weren't going to allow the Christians to be meeting there. So where would they meet? They had to meet in people's homes. And most homes were not large. So the wealthier in the congregation would have larger homes, and they would have to host people during that time. And let, let me just simply say, if you've hosted a lot, you know that that can get tiring. Having other people in your house and the way that you have to prepare for that and clean up afterwards and the food that you prepare and all the things that go into it. Hosting is 
a difficult thing. It can be something that God gives gifts towards that people would do. And yet what Peter's saying here is, as we approach the end, we need to be people of hospitality. Let me simply say, I actually think that this is significant in our current cultural context as well. We live in a time where it is not natural to even know your neighbor. You could move into a neighborhood and really, maybe you meet the person next to you because you mow your lawn next to them, but you just don't know people. Wouldn't it be countercultural if Christians were the people who opened their houses and said, come on over? I know uh, Rosaria Butterfield, I, I mentioned this a, a while back, Rosaria Butterfield, who had been converted by God's grace through the hospitality of a pastor who invited her. She was a, uh, a professor, a feminist professor, a lesbian, who was invited by a pastor to come, and she came, and she experienced true Christianity. She saw it lived out. And all of a sudden, her preconceptions about what Christians were just faded away because she saw the real thing. And let me simply say, I think we live at a time period in which that could be incredibly powerful. Just simply living an authentic Christian life in front of your neighbors. And is it going to be costly to open up your home to them? Will it always be a fun experience? No, it probably won't. But it is something that God, I believe, is calling the church at large to do. I'm not, I'm not trying to lay this at the feet of every person that you individually need to do it. But I do think that God is calling some of us to be hospitable in that way. And so I mention it to you. So we ought to be prayerful, be loving, be hospitable. He says another thing, be serving. And he says this, notice it in verse number 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. You know, the beginning of that passage indicates something to us, and that is that every one of us has received a gift. When you were redeemed by the Lord, he called you to something. He gave you a gift. Not necessarily then, we could talk about when you received that gift, but he's gifted each individual believer with something for the benefit of the body of Christ. And here's what Peter says. Since you've received a gift, as every one of you has received a gift, use it. Now you might ask the question, well, what gift have I been given? Well, you'll notice it's God's varied grace. It turns out that the gifts of God are multiple. And I don't know what your gift is. I, I know sometimes uh, you can take those online quizzes to determine your spiritual gifts. The last time I, I found out that I had a gift of healing. And, uh, <laughs> and I don't actually have the gift of healing. So I'm not sure I trust those online gift manifolds. I actually think it's probably better to look at personality-wise, to actually put your hand to the plow for a little bit and say, you know what, I don't know if I'm good at this or if I have a gift at this, but I'm going to try it once. Uh, God be praised, a number of years ago, somebody said, hey, Tim, would you, would you be interested in teaching a Sunday school? And I thought, what in the world would I do that for? Like, I, 
I guess I can try it. And you know what? I fell in love with it. And I just said, you know, I think that this is probably something I should do and I should pursue. But you know, part of the reason that I got into that was because when somebody asked, I said, you know, I'm going to see if the Lord's maybe gifted in that way. And I'm going to pursue that. And my simple statement here is to indicate that God gives different gifts to people. In fact, it's interesting when you look through the gift lists in the New Testament, what you're going to find is that no gift list is the same. Because you might think, all right, well, give me the list of gifts and then you can, I'll pinpoint which one that I have. But I actually don't think it works that way. Instead, God gives unique gifts to each of us and we're all different So I think here in this passage, though, he indicates two types of gifts, two broad categories. That's probably the best way of looking at it. Two broad categories of gifts. And those gifts are speaking gifts and serving gifts. Speaking gifts and serving gifts. So some of you may already say, well, I know I ain't got the speaking gifts, and that's fine. God didn't gift everyone with the Ability, desire, interest, any of those things to speak in front of other people. But I would say that all of our spiritual gifts fall under one of these two categories. Perhaps you have been gifted to speak. Perhaps you've been gifted to serve. Here's a passage in which he highlights for us different gifts. He says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, you'll notice he's got the same two categories as Peter does. The one who teaches, thank you. (laughs) The one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, uh, the one who, I'm I'm actually going to, The one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And as we look at that list, you'll notice the variety of different gifts. God's given to each of us different gifts. And it very well may be that one of the gifts he gave to you was making a lot of money so that you might provide for those who are in other situations in which they can't do that. Perhaps God's given to you a very cheerful countenance. And, and an ability in the darkest of circumstances to find the joy and to share that with others, then that's a part of what God's calling you to do. Look outside the bounds of what you immediately see and say, all right, there's a gift, there's a gift, there's a gift, I don't have any of those. Ask the question, what has God given to you? What personality-wise, what abilities, any of those sorts of things, and say, how can I bless this body with what God has given to me. That's what Peter's calling us to do. He's saying it's the final time. The whistle's about to blow. There's not much time left. So what are you going to do with your time? Use your gifts. And he mentions a couple of things in terms of these two categories. Uh, But before I get there, I should say that he calls us stewards of God's varied gifts. Steward is a really interesting word. Steward is often used in Jesus' parables. You remember Jesus saying that, uh, G- that a landowner goes and he leaves a steward. A steward is someone who's left in charge of something for a period of time. Did you know the gift that God has given to you is God's gift? 
given to you for a period of time for his service. And one day, he's going to ask you how you used your gift. You were a steward of it. Paul, I mean, remember the great apostle Paul. What does he say about himself? He says, I've done more than the other apostles. And you say, oh, Paul, yeah, you're really thinking highly of yourself. But do you know what he follows that with? But it wasn't me. It was God that was in me. And I couldn't have done any different because I was compelled. It was laid upon me because he gave me abilities and gifts and I had to use them because one day I'm going to stand before him. And I would just simply say to this congregation, some of you have gifts. You've got abilities. God's given them to you. And don't be the man who when Jesus comes back or the woman who when Jesus comes back has to unwrap your talent because you buried it and waited for him to return. But instead, you were one who took that talent and multiplied it and used it and grew it and made it better so that it could be more useful for the sake of his body. We are all stewards of gifts. And there are two types of gifts, two broad types I have suggested. And he gives two commands in reference to those gifts. Those who speak, and I know that there are some among this congregation who have opportunity, whether it's standing in this pulpit, whether it's on a Wednesday night, whether it's whatever other opportunity you have to open the word of God when other people are listening, then you're one who speaks. And this is what Peter says, speak as one who speaks the oracles of God. Oracle isn't a word we use often. What it means is you're speaking the wisdom of God. You're speaking God's words. That weighs heavily upon me when I stand in this pulpit. Because God is telling me, when I stand here to speak, I ought to speak as one who's speaking his words. And that, that's weighty because that means I can't come up here and just say, thus saith Tim. You don't want to hear, thus saith Tim. I don't want to say, thus saith Tim. I want to say, thus saith the Lord. I can only speak the words he speaks. I dare not speak less than what he or I dare not speak more than what he says and lay upon you a, con a conscience on something that he hasn't told you you must do. But the opposite side is the case as well. And, and, and as you look for your next pastor, keep this in mind as well. You want someone who will speak the whole counsel of God too. You can't have someone who's going to come up and they just have their hobby horses or they have certain topics. We're not going to talk in this church about homosexuality. We're not going to talk about the things that our culture at large is uh, challenging at the present moment because we're going to be uh, a, a group that's just going to grow by not talking about those sorts of things. Let me simply say that that is not the recipe for success. God has called us, if I'm going to stand here speaking as one who speaks the oracles of God, then I not only can't say more than what he said, I can't say less than what he said. And may that be the case in your ministry as you, some of you sitting here, have ministries of the word. You also speak as one who speaks the very words of God. If you serve, whoever serves, if you've got a serving gift, then serve as one who serves by the strength of God provides. And what does this mean? I, I think what 
Peter's getting at here is never forget that your strength in service is because of my strength strengthening you. The reason you can accomplish what you're accomplishing is because I stand behind you. As Jesus says in the great parable, that all of our strength comes from him. With outside the vine, we are powerless. But when we are attached to the vine, then all things come through Christ. And I think the two of these go together then. If I'm speaking the word of God, I'm speaking his words. And so at the end of the day, if he works through that, guess who's, who gets the glory for that? Not the one standing here, but the one who gave us the word. And if I'm serving God, if I'm doing hospitality, I'm visiting the sick, I'm providing financially out of the surplus means God's provided to me, if I'm doing all of these things, and if I look at myself and I say, man, I, I am pretty good then I've lost sight of all of it. You see, what do I give that I've not yet first been given? That's a question Paul asks. And it's a really good question to ask ourselves. You can't do anything that God didn't first give you. And so give him the glory for the opportunity to serve in the way in which he gave. Because again, it is his gift given to you. So we serve through the strength and with a cognizance of the fact that we are serving in the strength that God provides. And the reason for all this, he gives it quite clearly. So that in all things, God might receive the glory through Jesus Christ. And here's the biblical picture. Jesus rose from the dead. And the biblical picture in Ephesians chapter 2 is in his rising from the dead, he gave out gifts of service and of proclamation to the saints. And those gifts are now being used in his church under his leadership. So that when anything is done in this church, it goes to the glory of God. And I think of the numerous, excuse me, the numerous times that the scriptures speak, Paul talking about the time in which the church gave financially to his needs. In Philippians, he says, I was thankful for the gift, not really because I needed it. Actually, he did need it. But, but he says, I wasn't really thankful for that. But I was thankful for the way in which that abounded to, great, to glory to God. In other words, you gave and I was able to praise God for what you did. And so it is when we serve, when we give our time, our energy, our love to other members, other saints within the assembly, God receives the glory for that as it should be. So, what do we do in these last times? Well, we pray. We love one another. We show hospitality. We serve one another. And I would suggest this. Here's Jesus as he's explaining the end of things at hand. He says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are in it that are done on it will be exposed, that is exposed to the flame and destroyed. And then notice what he says, because what he's saying here is, look, the day of the Lord's coming and it's coming soon. And when it comes, everything's going to be wiped out on this earth. So then here's his question. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, everything's going to be destroyed. Everything that is in this world is going to be destroyed. 
What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness while we wait for and hasten the coming of the day of God? You know what Peter's saying here in 2 Peter, same author as 1 Peter. He's saying the end is coming and all things are going to be destroyed. So if that's the case, what kind of lives should we live? What should we do? And Peter's given to us in this passage how we can live. Live prayerfully. If you're going to be serious and sane and sensible, sober-minded about the end of the time, the, the whistle's about to blow, how do you live? Prayerfully, lovingly, hospitably, and with great service. The application today has been rather broad. There are lots of things to apply, and I don't know how the Lord may be applying the, the truth to your heart today. But I would simply say this, as we, as we look for and long for the return of our Lord, know that it's coming. It could be tomorrow. And here's what Scripture continuously says. Live like it is tomorrow, because it could be. And if we're going to live that way, in the sanely, soberly, prayerfully, lovingly, hospitably, and with great service to one another. Father, I thank you for the saints who sit before me. I thank you for their gifting. I thank you for the way that they have showed my family hospitality. I'm convinced today that many of them have spent hours in prayer over the proclamation of your word from this pulpit. And I have benefited from that. I'm so thankful for it. As we await the coming of your son, as we await that moment in which you will blow the final whistle and we will hear the trumpet blast from one side of the heavens to the other, as we await that, Father, help us to live rationally in light of that coming end. I especially ask that your people here today would consider the gifting that you provided to them and would discern how they can use the talents you provided for the multiplication of your glory on this earth. In Jesus' name.